Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. Episode 29 of Sorallo Sports Talk. I can't wait. I know that you can't wait because ESPN bracketologist Joe Lenardi is all set to join the show momentarily, break down the opening two rounds of this year's March Madness NCAA tournament, talk about what he likes looking ahead in the Sweet 16, the Final Four, and of course, his new book, Bracketology, March Madness, College Basketball, and the Creation of of a national obsession. He'll be hopping on shortly. Let's talk bracketology. Let's talk March Madness, the NCAA tournament. If you can hear this, that's the sound of me throwing away my bracket. My bracket is hot garbage. I'm sure your bracket is hot garbage too. I went with the Illinois Fighting Illini to win it all, and that has landed me with their quick round of 32 exit in the 20th percentile. And to add insult to injury, ESPN's even thrown a little ice cube next to my bracket entry just to let me know I am ice cold with my picks, my predictions. I mean, we'll talk about it when Joe Lenardi hops on his bracket in the 99th percentile. Now, mine was there a couple of years ago. I love to brag and boast about winning all my bracket pools in 2019, the most recent NCAA tournament when I had Virginia, of course, winning it all, the, the national champs. I had Texas Tech and Michigan State in my Final Four. That was picked correctly. My only wrong Final Four pick was Kentucky, and they lost in the Elite Eight to Auburn in overtime. So my bracket in 2019, nearly perfect and not the case. Anything but the case this time around. In fact, you know, I do have a method. I go with at least two 12 seeds every year. I try to go with at least two 11s this year. I think I just took one. It was UCLA. I was right, but I didn't have UCLA going to the Sweet 16. Who knows if they'll go even further. I usually also try to pick 113 and 114. Couldn't find a 14 this year. Liked Colgate. Looked good at halftime. I mean, they were up, what, 33-19 at one point in the first half, but Arkansas is actually one of my better picks throughout the tournament. I've got Arkansas going to the final four, so I couldn't take them to lose to Colgate there in the first round. I made that mistake, though, with Texas. I took the Texas Longhorns to go to the final four as well. Even though I didn't like their first round matchup with Abilene Christian, I didn't want to take Alabama. Alabama was a popular pick, especially with the the injury to Isaiah Livers over at Michigan. I wanted to go against the grain, go against the public. And so I took Texas because I thought, hey, they're a team that can knock off Bama in the Sweet 16, but I looked ahead from their first round matchup with Abilene Christian, and and just like that, I lost half my Final Four back-to-back games. You've got Texas Abilene Christian, the final game of the round of 64, and then Illinois Loyola Chicago, stupid me for picking against Sister Jean, former St. Bonaventure Athletic Director Steve Watson, and the Ramblers, and just like that, I lose Texas and Illinois within about a 12-hour span. Not great for my bracket, but who cares? right? Because it's great for March Madness. It's great for college basketball. And that's what I'm here for. You know, my one upset, by the way, I nailed the 13 seed after Virginia made me all that money two years ago. I was able to show them no loyalty, picked Ohio, the Bobcats, actually picked them to go to the Sweet 16 because I thought 
Santa Barbara would knock off Creighton. That, of course, a one-point loss for UCSB to the Creighton Jays. I had Ohio in the Sweet 16. I mean, look, obviously they kind of fell apart after the opening eight, 10 minutes or so against Creighton. They started looking good, but Jason Preston, he's an incredible point guard. He'll probably come back for his senior year and then get drafted to the NBA out of Ohio. I mean, that's not something that happens often for Ohio basketball, for Mac basketball. Jason Preston's legit. He'll probably be an NBA player. And the reason I was so high on Ohio against Virginia is because this is a kid who I got to see firsthand. I saw him last year when I was calling the St. Bonaventure games on ESPN+. Plus. He came into the Riley Center last season on opening night, led the Bobcats to an upset victory against the Bonnies. So Preston and the Bobcats, Vanderplas, of course, who great storyline there with his dad and Tony Bennett, the coach of Virginia, being old teammates at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I mean, the Bobcats are legit. And the fact that they were only the fifth seed in the MAC conference, this is a team that'll be back next year. And this is a conference that, you know, next year, it's unlikely, but it wouldn't absolutely shock me if they were able to muster a a second bid, maybe an at-large bid in addition. Because like I said, for a fifth seed to run the table, win the conference tournament, you know, Toledo can play. Buffalo has been ranked in the past three years, of course, when now Alabama coach Nate Oates was running things at Buffalo. I mean, the MAC can be a two-bid conference next season. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think the most shocking conference in college basketball so far this March has to be the Pac-12. And that's the most shocking in a positive way. Because in a negative way, the most shocking conference is the Big Ten. The overrated, no good, terrible Big Ten that put nine teams in the NCAA tournament and has just one team, top-seeded Michigan, going to the Sweet 16. I mean, how do you have four of the top eight overall seeds and only one of those four advances to the Sweet 16? You had one seed, Illinois, who was the number three overall seed in the whole field, knocked off by Loyola Chicago. Number two, Iowa, knocked off by Oregon. Number two, Ohio State, knocked off by everyone's sweetheart, everyone's tournament darling, Oral Roberts, the second 15 seed in the history of the tournament to go to the Sweet 16. I mean, I love this Oral Roberts team. I love Max Amos. I love O'Banner. I love the fact that not only do they shoot the three with anyone in the country, but they also defend the three. I believe they've limited Ohio State and Florida to a combined just 12 of 35, hitting about a third of their three-pointers. So not only are the Golden Eagles of Oral Roberts down in Oklahoma draining three-pointers, but they're actually doing what so few of these mid-majors are able to do, and they're defending against these these absolute Goliaths, Ohio State, Florida, teams that are used to bullying a mid-major when they get them in the NCAA tournament in the first round or sometimes even the second round. Oral Roberts is holding their own on both sides of the ball. Now, unfortunately, I think that ends with Arkansas. I think the Hogs are just too good on both sides. I think they're too fast. They're too strong. You know, Ohio State was missing Kyle Young. Ohio State had deficiencies on the glass. They're not a second chance opportunity team. Florida, I really didn't think was a great team all season. They never impressed me. I had Virginia Tech knocking them off. Of course, the Gators beat them in overtime in the first game of the round of 64. So Oral Roberts, for all intents and purposes, never an easy path to the Sweet 16 when you're a 15 seed. That's why it's only been done now twice in the history of March Madness, but about as easy as easy a path as you could ask for as a 15 seed. That'll end with Arkansas. I still have Arkansas 
in the final four. Something's got to give for me. I have to be right somewhere. So I'm hoping that as one of only two people in my bracket group that has the hogs going that far, I'm hoping Eric Musselman's crew can at least do me that favor. How about the Pac-12? Bill Walton's Conference of Champions. I mean, five teams in the tournament field. One of them in the first four UCLA for the second time in three years sent to the first four. Not even locked in, not even guaranteed a spot in the field of 64. They're in the Sweet 16 now as an 11 seed. Oregon State, who would not have been an at-large bid, who only got to the NCAA tournament because they ran the table in the Pac-12 tournament. Oregon State, the 12 seed now in the Sweet 16. And then an all-Pac-12 matchup, a 6 and a 7. USC knocking off 3-seed Kansas. Oregon blowing away. Two-seed Iowa. USC, by the way, blew out Kansas. I mean, that was a bigger blowout. 30-point win for the Trojans. Favored by one and a half going into that game. Already odd enough that a six-seed was favored over a three. Texas Tech, by the way, also a two-point favorite over Arkansas in that matchup. But USC, the one-and-a-half-point favorite, beat the Jayhawks by 30. Absolutely wild. So they get the right to play Oregon for a third time this season. The Pac-12's guaranteed at least one team in the Elite Eight. I mean, this is a conference that I'll take the accountability here. I said was by far the weakest of not just the Power Five, but throw in the Big East. And I thought the Pac-12 was the weakest of the Power Six conferences in college basketball. Well, now they're guaranteed at least one Elite Eight team. They could have a second. I mean, it's going to be tough. UCLA and Oregon State, they have tough matchups. Loyola Chicago, of course, the nation's best defense. I'll get to them. They're my favorite story of this tournament. And then for UCLA to take on Alabama, a team that can put up 90 points with relative ease, the best three-point shooting team in the country, a great rising star coach in Nate Oates, who's turned that program around from barely finishing over 500 in year one last year to now winning the SEC regular season and postseason title this year. I mean, Nate Oates, look, I don't love the guy, but he's an absolutely incredible coach. Alabama is not or has not been a basketball school And now you're looking at people calling them just a championship school, whether it's football or basketball. And look, their baseball team is nothing to scoff at either. I mean, it's the SEC. Every baseball team in the SEC can play. Alabama athletics far and away right now, the best in the country all around. But the Pac-12 will have at least one Elite Eight team. And man, they have proven me wrong. I thought Colorado was going to lose to Georgetown. They almost put up a hundo in that opening game. Of course, Florida State was able to balance out the Buffaloes. But Colorado had a great season, very convincing win against the Georgetown team that much like Oregon State ran the table in their conference tournament, blew out Creighton, who's now in the Sweet 16. I mean, Pat Ewing's boys can play, not the best shooters, not the best backcourt. And that, that's where Georgetown ultimately fell because Colorado lit it up, hit 11 threes in the first half of that game where Georgetown hit only eight shots in the opening 20 minutes of their matchup. But Pat Ewing's boys can play. He's got a great recruiting class next year. I think Georgetown is on their way to being back. I mean, I remember when I first got into college hoops as a St. John's fan growing up on Long Island, I remember Georgetown being a perennial 1-2-3 seed. And now they've gone a few years without making the tournament. This year got in because of the Big East Conference tournament. Pat Ewing's boys are on their way to being back. But the Pac-12 has been incredible. The Pac-12 has been so much better than any other power conference, right? I mean, how about the Pac-12 and the Big East combining for six of these Sweet 16 teams when the Big Ten has won, when the ACC has just won. I mean, those are, you know, you had Josh Pastner, the head coach of Georgia Tech, saying the ACC should have 11 teams in the tournament every year. Get out of here. 
I'm sorry. Look, I know Georgia Tech was without their best player, without ACC player of the year in that opening loss to Loyola Chicago. I think even if they were at full strength, at full health, I think that Loyola Chicago wins that game. I mean, the Ramblers are special. They're not a Cinderella anymore, right? And this brings us to my favorite storyline of this NCAA tournament. Loyola Chicago, their senior center, Cameron Crutwig, he was a freshman on the Final Four team in 2018. That was a Cinderella squad. To go from 11 seed to the Final Four, Sister Jean, the nation just introduced to the then 98-year-old nun, now 101 years old. This is no longer a Cinderella. I mean, this is a team that, if you compare them to mid-majors that have been incredibly successful in the past, I think they were actually snubbed when they were given an eight seed. I had Loyola Chicago as a six seed. You could argue a five seed going into the NCAA tournament. Cameron Crutwig has become just the fourth Missouri Valley Conference player of all time to accumulate 1,500 points, 800 rebounds, and 300 assists throughout his career. Now, you could look at that and you could say, well, he's the fourth, not the fourth player of all time, the fourth Missouri Valley Conference player, right? Like, how good is the Missouri Valley Conference? Well, let's take a look at the other guys who have done that. Oscar Robertson is one of the three prior to Crutwig who's done that. You ever hear of him? The Big O? One of the best players in NBA history, a guy who I think all too often gets shorted in terms of where he ranks all time in NBA history because of the era he played in. Oscar Robertson is on that list. Larry Bird. Now, this is a guy who gets the respect he deserves. Larry Bird, one of the best to ever do it. The old Indiana State Sycamore when he was battling with Magic Johnson and the Michigan State Spartans. Larry Bird's on that list. And then Hersey Hawkins. Not bad company for Cameron Crutwig to be a part of. Look, he was a third-team All-American. In a great ESPN Plus article that was released just yesterday, he was referred to by an anonymous opposing coach as someone who, as the coach put it, is a no doubt in my mind, first team All-American. Grutwig can play. You know, don't let the fact that he's not exactly shredded and that he's only a 6'9 center, which I guess nowadays is kind of small to play the five, and the fact that he's got the goofiest 80s porn star mustache you've ever seen, don't let any of that fool you. This kid can play. Physically, mentally, he's ahead of his opponents at all times. I mean, Loyola Chicago, I'm going to tell you right now in my second chance bracket, you know, I I begrudgingly picked Illinois to beat them because I had Illinois winning it all, right? Same thing that happened with Texas. I was looking big picture and looking ahead when I should have been looking at each matchup and analyzing and breaking down each individual game. Loyola Chicago is a team that I begrudgingly picked to lose, but I'm telling you right now, they're going to the final four. Oregon State can't keep this up forever. You know, Ethan Thomas has been great and the kid can take over a game, but you saw Oregon State really struggle in the second half against Oklahoma State and Cade Cunningham didn't even fully take over. I mean, he's going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft, probably going to be either a Houston Rocket or a Minnesota Timberwolf come June. And he didn't even fully take over in Oklahoma State. Got back in that one in the second half. Really scared the Beavers, cutting the lead down to three at one point, 70 to 67, before some late free throws lifted the Beavers. They're going to lose to Loyola Chicago. And I think Syracuse and that stifling 2-3 zone, you know, look, as much as I hate Syracuse, as much as I love to hate Syracuse, being a St. Bonaventure Bonnie, Buddy Beheim and what this orange team has done, has accomplished, you know, a team that a lot of people thought should have been in a play-in game in that first four. They get an 11 seed without a play-in. They make a run, knock off San Diego State, who I had in my Elite Eight. They knock off West Virginia, 
I mean, this has been a really fun team. Maybe the most fun because Buddy Beheim is crushing the narrative that he is the coach's son, golden child. That the only reason he's on Syracuse's basketball team is because he's Jim Beheim's son. No, Buddy Beheim can play. And at first he was a D guy. And now he's the best scorer on that team. You can argue maybe the best scorer in the ACC this year. Buddy Beheim can play basketball. And Syracuse, I think, is going to beat Houston. This is a Houston team that struggled with Memphis a couple times late in the season. That really struggled with Rutgers. I mean, Rutgers had two points in the final four minutes. If the Scarlet Knights didn't forget how to score the basketball, they would have beaten Houston in that 10-2 matchup. I think Syracuse takes care of Houston. And I think you get an 8 versus an 11 in the Elite 8 in that Midwest region. I think Loyola Chicago's defense is enough to take on Syracuse in a low-scoring affair. I think the Ramblers and Sister Jean ramble on to the Final Four where they meet Arkansas. I got to stick with my hogs, right? It's the one pick that I have that could actually get me back in contention in any of my brackets. I mean, I have Gonzaga, two of my Final Four teams still alive, but who doesn't have Gonzaga? And by the way, I think Gonzaga, if they face USC, will have some trouble. I think they have an easier time with Oregon, even though Oregon, like Cuse, plays a stifling zone defense. In terms of USC's size, that's where they could pose a matchup threat to Gonzaga, but this is a scary, good Gonzaga team. So I'm going to take them to go to the Final Four and take on Michigan. I had Michigan losing in the Elite Eight to Texas. You know, look, if there's anyone that can neutralize Alabama, I think it's Michigan. They don't shoot the three as well, but Bama's down to have an off day sooner or later. I hope it comes for my bracket's sake against UCLA and that the Bruins can beat Bama. But I think Michigan is learning how to play just fine without Isaiah Livers. They faced an offensive juggernaut in LSU and they were able in the final 10 minutes to pull away from the Tigers. I think Michigan halts Leonard Hamilton's final four dreams. Once again, they go to the Elite Eight. They take care of Bama. And I think you get two one seeds on the left. I think you get a three and an eight on the right. And I think ultimately the Ramblers get to the championship game, but fall to Gonzaga. I hate to do it. I pick against Gonzaga every year. I don't buy the West Coast Conference team going all the way. Something about playing Pepperdine and Santa Clara just doesn't sit right for me to call that team national champs. But, you know, the more I, the more I look at it, the more I watch them, you know, that Oklahoma game, I actually was for the spread in that game was 14 and a half. And that's a huge number for an NCAA tournament game. I teased Oklahoma to plus 18 and a half. And that's the only reason I hit Gonzaga beat him by 16. I mean, this is an Oklahoma team that had top 10 wins this year. They collapsed as of late finishing 15 and 11. I believe at one time they were about 14 and six. I mean, this was a sooner team. I don't know what happened late in the year, but Austin Reeves, one of the best scorers in the country. I mean, this team was tough. They went toe-to-toe with Oklahoma State, with Kansas, with West Virginia, toe-to-toe with Baylor. I mean, this was a good Sooner team. And Gonzaga, with the exception of maybe the opening 10 minutes, really took care of them, took them to school. So I think Gonzaga and Loyola Chicago. I think we're going to get an all-mid-major, even though Gonzaga, you know, for all intents and purposes, is a power school. I think we're going to get an all-mid-major championship game because that's what this year has been. And I absolutely love it. Look, I may not be picking them to cut down the nets, but I'm rooting for Loyola Chicago to cut down the nets. And just in case this opening monologue wasn't enough March Madness for you, when we come back, Joe Lenardi, ESPN Bracketologist, is all set to join me right here on Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. We'll be right back.
Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. here on Sorallo Sports Talk and joining the show. It's ESPN Bracketologist and author of the new book, Bracketology, March Madness, College Basketball, and the creation of a national obsession, ESPN's Joe Lenardi. Joe, thanks so much for joining the show. Joe, it's nice to see you again, and I see you're repping the Bonnies <laughs> as well you should. I have to. You know, it was a great a year. Bra- I wore a brown pullover for you. There you go. You know, look, you're one of the few national experts that really always shows St. Bonaventure some love. So I want you to know that Bonin Nation really does appreciate it because you got guys like Jerry Palm who want to put us in a play-in game if we don't win the A-10 tournament. And uh, to have the respect from you means a lot. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where that came from. Uh, (laughs) He's a friend and a smart guy, but uh, look, we all have our misses. (laughs) Absolutely. Joe, you don't have too many misses, and I want to get to your incredibly accurate projection of the field. But first, your new book. I mean, it discusses the obsession that is bracketology from November to March. You know, as soon as college basketball season tips off, people want to know two games in what your field looks like. It's incredible. What to you has been the biggest evolution of bracketology from 10, 20 years ago to where it is today? I think certainly the year round focus. Uh, or almost near-round focus uh, that, that you just mentioned, Joe. Uh, it is, as we record this, the, the Wednesday in between uh, the first weekend of the NCAA tournament and the Sweet 16. And just this morning, I got my first message. Uh, when is next year's bracket going to be ready? Get out. And ordinarily, we would put it up you know, in the week or so after this year's Final Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that that's going to happen this year. Certainly kind of the open season transfer policy that we're witnessing in Division I uh, is, is going to make those kinds of projections a little harder to, to, to have meaning. Uh, but, you, you know, if the public demands it, who am I to let them down? <laughs> Absolutely. And Joe, one other thing I want to talk about in terms of the evolution of bracketology, what has changed when it comes to seeding the mid-major schools? You know, if you look at, I'm trying to think when I was a kid and first started watching March Madness, you know, Southern Illinois, I recall getting a four seed. Uh, I recall the Siena team that got a nine seed and knocked off Ohio State, you know, Northern Iowa getting a nine seed, knocking off Kansas. It seems that nowadays it's so much harder for these small schools to do any better than an an 11 or a 12 seed, unless you're like a Loyola Chicago who gets the 11, makes the final four, and now gets recognized. But even you can argue this year that they were underseeded with an eight. So why is it that it's so much harder for these mid-majors to get a four, five, six, seven seed? Well, a lot of it is is the quote-unquote counting exercise that the selection process has become. And by that, I mean, you know, for mostly good reasons, they've they break down each team's record into the four quads, mm-hmm. right? With, with quad one being es- essentially the equivalent of the at-large field 
or, or at least the at-large field uh, legitimate pool of at-large teams, the top 50, roughly. And, you know, the power conferences are just going to get more chances because of who they play in their league. That hasn't changed. It isn't going to change. If anything, it's going the other way toward uh, a greater imbalance because these leagues are expanding their in-season conference schedules from, you know, 16 to 18 to 20 games. And that is shutting out, you know, the Loyola Chicago's of the world. And then you add in this particular season with the pandemic and you know, the non-conference schedules were uneven across the country, to say the least. And in, in the case of some leagues, almost non-existent. Yeah. So those games to kind of, quote unquote, prove yourself just weren't there. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe, let's talk about your bracket projection, because you hit 67 out of 68. Absolutely remarkable. And, and I think if people looked at your projection and looked at the ultimate field, they probably would have thought that what you had is better than what the committee ended up with. I mean, Louisville missing surprised a lot of people, a seven loss power five conference team. Uh, I don't think many saw that coming. They were of course the first team out. What's your biggest gripe with how the selection committee ended up creating the field? Is, is it Louisville or is it some seeding you know, stuff with other no. teams? No, uh, I, I don't have any gripes about selections. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louisville was a weak, a weak resume. Uh, in, in part because they played the fewest league games in the ACC mm-hmm. on account of COVID. And uh, they had separate pauses. Each time they came back, they got absolutely annihilated. Wisconsin uh, game comes to mind. With, yeah, and also North Carolina in the last month of the season. So no complaints. Uh, y- you know, I had them in because I thought the committee would put them in. Had I been voting myself, I think, well, this is, you know, a little bit of my own biases coming to the fore. I, I, I think of the teams to just miss the field, the best basketball team, not necessarily the best resume, the best basketball team was probably St. Louis. I agree. Uh, uh, and they came in at 71st on the committee's list because we saw their rankings from 69 to 72 because they had to build a contingency list. And, uh, you know, hey, I think maybe the thing to do for me, Joe, is not to say 67 of 68, but say 72 of 72, because we had all them right and we had them in order. Yeah. So, you know, maybe I just retire and you can (laughs) right, right here on your show. And, and everyone can still call us Joey Brackets. They don't have to change that if we go from you to me. So it works well, out. Well, I didn't suggest that. <laughs> but no. I would, I, I would, I would like a really smart, really good-looking, basketball-loving Italian to take my place someday. And as soon as I find one, I'll let you know. Preferably one with a Catholic Atlantic Ten school education as well. That couldn't hurt. <laughs> So, Joe, let's talk about the bracket you filled out because you are currently on ESPN. I, I submitted my bracket to Joe Lenardi's group. And Uh-oh. how bad is it? Well, I want to preface this by saying in 2019, the most recent NCAA tournament, I finished in the 99th percentile. I had Virginia, Michigan State, Texas Tech in the final four. The one final four team I missed was Kentucky, who got knocked off in overtime in the Elite Eight. 
it, it was a great bracket last time around. This time around, not so much. Illinois winning it all, not great. Texas in the final four, a classic case of me looking ahead. I hated their first round matchup, but I, all I kept thinking was if anyone's going to knock off Alabama, it's going to be Texas. And so I looked ahead of Abilene Christian, picked Texas to beat Alabama and, you know, duped myself there. You have USC and Oregon in the Sweet 16, nailed that one. You nailed Gonzaga Creighton when a lot of people were taking Virginia. You also took Oral Roberts to beat Ohio State in the first round. Joe, what was the thinking there? What about Oral Roberts in the regular season in their conference tournament did you see that made you think they were going to beat the Buckeyes? I probably pressed the wrong button. <laughs> I don't, no, all right. So, so here's what I said before the game when questioned about that pick, right? You're looking for possibility at that level, right? We know there's going to be in a typical year, one or two of these like really out of the blue 14, 15 type winners, right? I mean, this year we had a 13, a 14 and a 15 and a 12 and a bunch of tens and et cetera. But I look at kind of the twos and threes and, you know, I generally don't look at the ones for that first round. I mean, I know, like I can spell UMBC, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, number ones are now 143 and one in that game. So, you know, you're betting on the 16 at your own risk. Yeah. There have been eight prior to this year, eight 15s to win, which is, between a fifth and a quarter of the time between 20 and 25 percent so that's a decent number right so I, I i looked at ohio state or roberts and the seeding you know 215 would suggest like this big of a difference right i'm holding my hands a foot apart i thought the true talent level was you know more like three or four inches apart interesting i thought that uh it was more like a 5-12 game or a, a 4-13 game in terms of gap. Uh, Ohio State was terrific. And they ran all year with the big dogs in the Big Ten, Illinois, Michigan, Iowa. But if you put the four rosters side by side of those leaders of the Big Ten that got one seeds and two seeds, there's no doubt in my mind that Ohio State would be a distant fourth. Mm-hmm. If you asked any coach, you can have any one of these rosters, Ohio State would be the last pick. Okay? That, they just would enough. be. That, that's not a knock. In fact, it's a, it should be praiseworthy because of, of that they overachieved their roster. Okay. So there's that. Then I look at Oral Roberts, who I had seen going back as far as November because I worked some games from home in that November tournament out in South Dakota uh, that was, you know, Memphis, VCU, Utah State, Samir's. it was a bunch of good mid-majors, and I think West Virginia was in that event as well, and they mm. won it. Uh, and I kind of fell in love with this kid, Max Asmus, who all he did was lead the nation in scoring. <laughs> I don't know about you, but, like, that seems like kind of a big deal to have the leading scorer in the country on your team. I'd say. And and I just didn't think that Ohio State had a matchup to really contain him. So, look, 
I didn't think Ohio State was a lock to lose the game. I just didn't think it was like a 90-10 pick. I thought Oral Roberts had maybe one chance in four to win, Uh, which for taking a 15 is, again, pretty good odds, right? You're looking for value in the differential. And uh, uh, I I happen to, believe it or not, uh, because, you know, that's a stretch of the year where I'm just kind of coming off not sleeping very much for a month. Uh, I actually, in, in the middle of that day's games, I decided to lay down for a couple hours. And I intentionally did it during that game because I thought, having gone out on that limb, it's probably going to be like 80 to 40. Yeah. Ohio State. And then all I know is my daughter running in and saying, Dad, it's in overtime. So naturally, I popped up. And and saw the the finish and uh, yeah I yeah I put my chest out a little bit I felt pretty good and, about yourself <laughs> and I think that uh, I think I'm good for a few years on the on the two fifteen deal yeah there you go Joe and, and uh, like I said other incredible picks that USC Oregon matchup just stands out having a six seven picked correctly in the Sweet sixteen I mean that's pretty rare in and of itself but ultimately with your winner you went with the number one overall seed you went with Gonzaga. Joe, were you obligated to pick Gonzaga since Mark Few wrote the forward in your book? Actually, that, that no. <laughs> no, but it's it's not a terrible thought. Uh, it, my, my pick at the beginning of the year was uh, Baylor over Gonzaga in the final. Okay. Back in, in November when we had to do it. And, and I thought all along I wouldn't change because then, well, simply – I'd have a chance to be wrong twice instead of once. Uh, but I look, I thought Gonzaga was going to be really good. They're better than I thought. And, you know, heading into the tournament, there was at least a question about Baylor hitting its stride from its, its late February COVID pause. So factored that in, uh, went with the Zags. I, I, I do think they're historically good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they played a best of seven against Baylor on the neutral court, I mean, we're talking about a six or seven game series here. Yes. So, I mean, we're talking about a lot of fun, those two teams matching up. Yes. Yes. And uh, I, I, I can't say that if I had a pick tomorrow, I wouldn't take Baylor. I think it's that close. Interesting. Now, if you look at the second chance bracket, you know, one more thing on Oral Roberts and then. Loyola Chicago, because they're America's sweetheart, Sister Jean. Of course, former St. Bonaventure Athletic Director Steve Watson running the show over there. Yep. Does Oral Roberts beat Arkansas? And does Loyola Chicago make a Final Four run? I, I do not think Oral Roberts will beat Arkansas. Okay. Uh, as much as, you, you know, I, we just said so many great things about them. Uh, I, I think you have to go with Loyola, though, in that region. Uh, I know, you know, my heart is certainly with them. Uh, like, for any mid-major slash non-football slash non-power conference school, to, 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 to even be in the conversation for a Final Four is extraordinary. To do it two of the last three tournaments – if it happens, will be one of the greatest stories 
in, in the history of college basketball. Yeah. Uh, so of course I'm rooting for that. Uh, and, 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 and then I'll stick with, uh, with, with my original pre-tournament picks of Baylor, the Zags and Alabama. Fair enough. Your, your bracket's looking incredible, Joe. Before you go, last thing, since someone already opened the floodgates and asked about next year's bracket, St. Bonaventure returns all five of their starters next year. We hope. Well, yeah, I mean, Oshun Oshuni, I wouldn't surprise me if he tests the NBA draft waters, but I think he'll be coming back with this group. What are your expectations for an early seed for St. Bonaventure in the 2022 tournament? Well, if we seed them based on this roster intact, mm -hmm. Uh, and the fact that they'll almost certainly be picked to win the league. Uh, uh, I mean, you could also make an argument for VCU, certainly, if they bring everyone Bones back. Island, of course, player of the year, just yeah. a sophomore. Yeah, the, the, the Bonnies and VCU, you know, were both maybe a half a year to a year ahead of schedule mm -hmm. this year. You know, it was going to be Richmond and SLU, and neither of them quite made it. Uh, and who knows? Maybe next year the team's – that are third, fourth, and fifth will be the challengers. We haven't looked that far ahead yet. I mean, there'll certainly be a single-digit seed. Uh, I'll probably want to make them higher than the committee. Uh, so let's let's say they were a nine this year uh, without having the non-conference schedule in front of me, but we'll be getting to work on that soon. Uh, I, I would say uh, seven. There we go. I love it. I love it. I mean, the goal next year is certainly sweet 16. If all these guys come back and I love a seven seed to make a run like that. So Joe, thanks so much for your faith in the Bonnies and thanks so much for joining Serralo sports talk ESPN's bracketologist, Joe Lenardi. Make sure you go get the book bracketology. It came out what three weeks ago, uh, March 2nd. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A little so over three weeks ago. Been out there and you can get it on Amazon. I'm sure anywhere else that you can buy books. It's definitely worth the read. Joe, thanks so much for the time. Okay, Joe. Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Serralo Sports Talk. It is time for my final word here on Serralo Sports Talk. What an incredible spot right there by Joe Lenardi. You know, I don't know if it's the Italian thing. Or if it's the Atlantic 10 education that just makes him the best at what he does. You know, other networks, they have their guys. But Joe Lenardi, the best bracketologist in the business. The inventor, the creator. Uh, no one can top what he does. I only hope to be able to fill the shoes of Joey Brackets one day. As he alluded to just minutes ago. Look, this is a rarity for me. It is an all-basketball show. March Madness in my monologue. March Madness with my guest. And now... The NBA taking over my final word. The NBA trade deadline. Just hours away as this show is released. And I want to focus on a dark horse surprise playoff team. My New York Knicks. New York Knicks basketball is fun again. I mean, this is incredible. Tom Thibodeau has been the best coaching hire the Knicks have made in probably two decades. And I loved Mike D'Antoni. And I loved Mike Woodson. And they had more talented rosters than Tom Thibodeau has. He is the best coach the Knicks have had since Van Gundy. 
I mean, it's, it's not even disputable, frankly. What he's done with this team, with one star in Julius Randle, and a bunch of role players, and a bunch of young kids, what Thibodeau's done at Madison Square Garden this year has been nothing short of spectacular and absolutely special. And so the Knicks, who are 500, what are they going to do in the coming hours before the trade deadline hits? I can't believe I'm saying this. I hope nothing. I hope the Knicks don't do a thing. The Knicks have three draft picks in June's NBA draft, and they're all probably going to range from the 15th pick in the draft to about the 33rd pick in the draft. So they're going to have three picks in a series of 18 selections, and I think the Knicks can really do some damage there. I think the Knicks can strike gold somewhere in those three picks. I'm not saying all three of them are going to be great, but look what they did in last year's draft, right? Obi Toppin, the Dayton superstar. I'm convinced if there was an NCAA tournament last year, if COVID didn't cancel it, the Dayton Flyers were going to be national champs. Obi Toppin was that special, was that much better than everyone else last year in college basketball. He falls into the Knicks' laps at seven, and then Emmanuel quickly in the early 20s, becomes arguably the best draft pick that the Knicks had last year. I mean, look, I don't know how their two careers are going to play out. Truthfully, I think that they're both going to be great. But so far as rookies, Emmanuel quickly has actually been better than Obi Toppin. He's played more of a role. He's been more of an impact player for this Knicks squad, for Tom Thibodeau's system. He's been nothing short of absolutely incredible. And You know, I kind of had a great feeling about Quickly on draft night when the Knicks selected him and John Calipari goes on ESPN and starts raving about the kid. I mean, Calipari quickly wasn't the highest Kentucky Wildcat drafted that night. Calipari gave him more praise than I've seen him give anyone since maybe, and I hate to label him a bust just yet. I think it's still early and he still has potential. But since maybe Kevin Knox, who of course the Knicks also, I mean, the Knicks, Julius Randle, Kevin Knox, Emmanuel Quickly, You might as well call him the New York Wildcats because John Calipari has proven to be a pipeline coach for the New York Knicks. And obviously Randall had some stops along the way, but it's wild that about a quarter of the Knicks roster, maybe a third of the guys who actually play are out of Kentucky. But then again, I guess the same can be said for the NBA, right? Kentucky's been a perennial powerhouse, obviously with the exception of this season since Calipari got there and even before that. Now look, the reason I want the Knicks to stay put at the trade deadline is because the New York Knicks, not only do they have three draft picks that I don't want to part with any of them, but they're one of just six teams in the NBA that have ample cap space going into free agency. In fact, any cap space, 24 of the league's 30 teams are projected to be over the salary cap when free agency begins. Now, obviously that's going to change. Teams are going to make cuts. Teams are going to restructure contracts. They're going to make trades. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's got to happen in order to fill out a roster. But the Knicks are one of the few teams that haven't fallen victim to the ridiculous astronomical salaries handed out in the NBA in recent years. And that's going to pay dividends this year. Look, there can be some humongous names out on the market, right? If Kawhi Leonard opts out from the Clippers, he's obviously everyone's top target. Chris Paul, I don't care how old he is, 36 years old, if Chris Paul opts out from Phoenix, I want the Knicks to get him. 
I think that Chris Paul, first off, the Knicks are going to lose three. Now, they may re-sign guys, but three of the four point guards on the, on the Knicks' active roster are set to be free agents. So they need a point guard. And I think you can get a good backup point guard somewhere in the early 20s or maybe with a 33rd pick, assuming that the Knicks' second rounder from Detroit will fall at 33. You can probably get a good backup point guard. There are actually a lot of guys I like. Sharif Cooper out of Auburn, I love. Bones Highland out of VCU. I think he's more of a shooting guard, but you know, he averaged five assists per game to go with 20 points this year. A 10 player of the year. I think he returns to VCU, but if he enters the draft, hey, you could probably snag him at 33. You know, Chris Duarte at Oregon right now, he's still playing. He's improving his draft stock this senior. Mac McClung, who had an incredible grad transfer year at Texas Tech. I mean, those are four guys right there who I think would be great value point guards taken in the low 30s with that Detroit Pistons second round pick. You know, I think you can really find a good backup point guard there. But the Knicks need a starting point guard. You know, Frank Nidalekina, bye, I'm done. I don't care that you're 22 years old. When your career averages through four years in the NBA are less than six points and less than three assists per contest, I mean, give me a break. I've been against Frank Nidalekina from the start. I've never come around. And I think that I have good reason to still be anti Frank, I don't care. Like I said, 22 years old, I don't see any upside there. You know, people say, oh, he's got great length. He's a plus defender. He doesn't average a steal per game. He hasn't done it in any individual season in his career, and he doesn't average it for his entire career. So I want him gone. I want the Knicks to draft a point guard, but I want the Knicks to sign a point guard. I think Lonzo Ball is coming to New York. You know, Chris Paul would be, even though he's 36, Chris Paul would be my top option because I think with young talent around him. Look at what he's doing in Phoenix right now, right? Chris Paul has taken the Phoenix Suns from Western Conference bottom feeder to first place in their division, ahead of the Lakers, ahead of the Clippers. Chris Paul has worked wonders in Phoenix, but he's 36 years old. And while that doesn't scare me from signing him, there's no way he opts out. Now, I know New York is much more desirable than Phoenix, but think about this. He's playing with two young studs, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, and oh, by the way, Chris Paul is set to make $44 million next year at age 36. That's right, 44 mil at 36 years old. I mean, look, most guys might think, all right, maybe I'll restructure. This could be my last big contract, my last two to three year deal. No, Chris Paul is going to go out there for the Suns, collect that 44 mil, Bank on having another season similarly to the great year he's putting together right now and maybe sign another two, three-year deal after that. But he ain't passing up 44 mil. So Lonzo Ball is atop my list to be the starting point guard of the New York Knicks next year. Austin Rivers, the lone point guard on their roster who comes back. Look, I'm open to D. Rose coming back. I mean, Derek Rose with Tom Thibodeau, that is like a match made in heaven. The two of them together is the perfect marriage. If there's a coach in the NBA who's going to get the most out of Derek Rose... It's his old Bulls coach when he was an MVP. It's Tom Thibodeau. But Rivers comes back. I think they draft a point guard with their third pick in June's draft. And I think Lonzo Ball is the number one priority for the New York Knicks. You know, I'd love to see them with those two first rounders. Of course, they have their own and they have the Mavericks first rounder. Now, look, the Mavericks are currently the eight seed in the West. The Knicks are currently the sixth seed in the East. 
Those are both teams that can finish as high as maybe a five seed, both teams that can finish as low as maybe 10th. So the Knicks could end up with two lottery picks. I think it's unlikely. I think that they actually both will make the playoffs and that the Knicks will be drafting anywhere between, I don't know, 15 and 20 with those two picks. I want Cam Thomas. I mean, I just got to see this kid up close against St. Bonaventure for LSU in the first round. He was one of the nation's top five leading scorers. I believe the leading scorer of all players in power five conferences. Get me Cam Thomas to New York. Now, I know if you look at the depth chart with Emmanuel quickly, they just drafted a shooting guard. And of course, they have RJ Barrett. So the Knicks have taken two shooting guards in the first round back-to-back years. Well, like I said, Kevin Knox, I hate to label it, label him as such so early. He's kind of been a bust. And so if you can slide R.J. Barrett, which, I mean, he's what, 6'7"? He's a great slasher. He has a post game. He likes to score in the paint. If you slide R.J. to the three and you draft Cam Thomas, you know, you could have Emmanuel quickly as a potential sixth man of the year candidate down the line. And all of a sudden, your starting one, two, three could be Lonzo Ball, Cam Thomas, and R.J. Barrett with Julius Randle, an all-star now at the four, Mitchell Robinson, who I love at the five. I mean, the Knicks are going to have depth. Don't forget, Obi Toppin's in the mix. I mean, I think his, his ceiling is astronomical. His potential is as high as anyone from last year's draft class. So if you're looking at quickly and Toppin coming off the bench and that potential starting five, Cam Thomas through the draft, Lonzo Ball through free agency, you know, the Knicks need to stay put. They're playing with house money this year. They're going to make the playoffs. I know there's a chance they could fall as low as 9 or 10. I don't see this team collapsing. I don't see Tom Thibodeau leading a team to a collapse. This team's going to the playoffs, and they're playing with house money. I don't care if they get swept in the first round. I don't care if they're a quick exit when the playoffs do roll around because they weren't expected to be anywhere near them this season. So do what you're doing. Stick with your guys. Stick with your guns. And then next year, go win the division. You know, I think the Knicks really are capable of doing that. Philadelphia is going to be tough. Brooklyn's going to be tough. But the Knicks have played both of those teams to three-point games in the last two weeks. So maybe it's wishful thinking, but maybe Tom Thibodeau can coach a team from worst to first in a two-year span. And just like that, this episode of Serralo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. Special thanks, of course, to ESPN's Joe Lenardi for hopping on the show. It's always a good time when you get to talk to Joey Brackets. I'll see you next week right here with me, Joe Serralo, Serralo Sports Talk.
listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube